Welcome to episode 69 of Larry Dowdy Mike Side. My guest is one of my favorite co-workers, went on morning at WDBJ7, made me laugh in my retirement send-off video in 2020. Joe DeShiel is wdbj 7s senior reporter. He's manned three bureaus in the past, a 1980 grad at WNL. Joe, it is great to have you as my guest on Mike Side. Well, Larry, it's great to be with you today. Uh, it's been a, a few years since we sat across the desk from each other here at WDBJ7, but I enjoyed working with you, and I'm glad to be with you today. Well, I'm so glad to have you on board uh, here on the podcast. Now, you're a Norfolk native. Uh, how did you get to Roanoke from Norfolk? Well, I attended school at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, so that's really the, the key here. I went with a bunch of my high school classmates to WNL and had a great experience there. And as I was finishing up, I majored in journalism. And as I was finishing up, um, I had an internship scheduled with a radio station in Orange, Virginia. I think it was WRMA, maybe. I can't remember the, the call letters exactly. Mm -hmm. Not actually an internship. It was like a summer job. But as I was finishing up at, at WNL, uh, Ron McDonald, who was the head of the journalism department and not coincidentally uh, WDBJ7 anchor in the 1960s, he said, Channel 7's looking for an intern. Uh, would you like to go there? And so he, he set me up uh, with an internship here at WDBJ. I came here, I think my first day in the door was April 15th of 1980. Um, so I came in as an intern. I became a summer employee. And then toward uh, the fall of the year, uh, we had a vacancy in our Lynchburg office. And so I went there. And so this is the only full-time job I have ever had. I started as an intern, eventually went full-time in August, and I've been an employee of WDBJ7 ever since. You know, at a glance, your resume would look kind of boring job-wise, but then you, you see all the accolades that you got along the way, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and that sure. says so much about Joe DeShiel. And I remember Ron McDonald from the standpoint of, one, I grew up in Roanoke, so I remember seeing him on the air, but two, when I was at Channel 7 uh, doing morning out in the field and everything, his name would come up so frequently uh, it was almost like WNL was a stepping ground for people that came into seven. Well, it's true. There, there have been a number of people uh, over the years who have come from WNL to Channel Seven, and Ron, of course, was not. I don't think he graduated from WNL because he was from uh, Vermont, I believe. But you know, he was the head of the journalism department, and and so he helped to funnel quite a few people. I think over the years from WNL through uh, Channel 7. And and we've had, you know, people back in the day before I started, um, and then even some in the years since, like uh, Dave Seidel, who's the news director over at WVTF. Mm -hmm. He worked here at Channel 7 for many years, and he was he's a WNL graduate as well. So we, we have had a, a strong connection between WDBJ and WNL, and I think it served us both well. Absolutely. Joe Shield, uh, when did you realize the news business was for you? That's a good question. I, you know, in high school, I did write for the school newspaper. Uh, at WNL, I uh, became involved with the radio station, WLUR, and also there was a, a cable TV station that I was involved in. So I, I you know, I enjoyed the, the journalism. Uh, I enjoyed uh, broadcasting, working on the radio station. 
working as a news person for the radio station and the cable TV. And so I think that was probably the, you know, when I realized it would be a, uh, an interesting way to make a living, uh, something I would gain some creative satisfaction from and feel like I was doing something worthwhile. And so, yeah, that, that, that I think probably the radio station at WNL was really where I decided that this would be a, a career worthy path. And that's very interesting because uh, I, I asked uh, Jeff Taylor, who did the previous podcast before this one, uh, episode 68, I asked him the same question. I didn't realize he was in radio. You did radio. Uh, a lot of, I know, yeah, I spent my years there. Uh, Mike Stevens, the uh, same way. So many did. Sure. Do you think radio prepared you for television? Oh, for sure. My first commercial job was at WREL Lexington, <laughs> uh, where I, I really worked as a DJ on the weekends, just, you know, filling in as a, a DJ. On WLUR, I was the news director and, and worked as a reporter. So that's where I first, uh, you know, practiced my skills as a broadcast journalist. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it was a good uh, training ground for me. And I can tell you, you know, there are a whole host of people who I've worked with or uh, worked alongside over the years who got their start in, in radio. I mean, you think of people like uh, Connie Henson, Connie mm -hmm. Stevens, who was on the air here. She, you know, had a career in public radio. I know uh, Ellen Qualls, you might remember her. She um, was our uh, Richmond reporter for a period of time, went on to be the um, press secretary for Mark Warner. She ended up working for Nancy Pelosi, among others, and is uh, still involved in political consulting. Um, she started at uh, the radio station, one of the radio stations in Charlottesville. And so you know, organizations, uh, other TV news organizations started in radio. And I think it was a great training ground for me and for many others. And there are a lot of people who you know, were in radio and moved on to other things who still remember their days in radio very fondly. Uh, you know, they uh, talk about uh, their radio uh, career as some of the most enjoyable moments in their professional life. And so I think once you do radio, you, you, you know, you always remember it and always appreciate it, even if you don't make it your career. Did you have a favorite news anchor growing up? You know, we used to watch CBS. So, you know, certainly Walter Cronkite. Uh, you know, the CBS Evening News mm -hmm. would have been sort of the gold standard for us. Over the years, I always appreciated folks like uh, Roger Mudd and Bob Schieffer, who, um, you know, who maybe weren't the mainline anchors, but, you know, were, were really good reporters. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, you think about uh, people here at Channel 7, this, you know, uh, Ann Compton, you know, she um, probably wasn't somebody I was aware of as a young person, you know, before I went off to college, but, uh, but she was also, you know, to, to see what she accomplished here in Roanoke before going on to ABC news and her amazing career there. She was also another person to look up to as well. But yeah, those are kind of the, the old school CBS crew particularly were, were role models, I guess. Now uh, you've manned three bureaus starting in 1980 in Lynchburg, New River Valley in 82, before moving to Richmond in 85. Today, of course, you're based in Roanoke, but you still frequent Richmond. Is it hard yep. to keep politics and covering the General Assembly interesting to the viewer? You know, I don't think so. Now, <laughs> maybe you need to ask the viewers that question, not me, but... <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, in the time that I have been covering the Capitol, which I really first arrived in Richmond uh, as a full-time Richmond, you know, Capitol po political reporter in 1985, 
And when I first arrived there in, in 85, uh, you know, there were so many reporters covering the Capitol that we would we would fight over the 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 video feeds. You know, there would be TV stations from across the state and there, you know, we would uh, have to figure out how everybody was going to get the uh, the video that they needed. Um, there were, you know, newspapers. Most of the newspapers had more than one person covering the Capitol. So, I mean, the Capitol press corps was just much uh, more robust than it is today. What I, you know, I hear today, you know, you hear that, well, viewers aren't interested in meetings or they aren't interested in the, you know, the the politics or, or the sort of the, the procedures and the logistics of, of the General Assembly. But when I look at it, I see all these incredibly controversial issues, hot button issues. I mean, what are people more fired up these days than about issues like abortion or racial equity, uh, the teaching of the standards of learning on history and other things like that, um, gun rights. I mean, these are all issues that people are very passionate about, no matter which side of the issue you come down on. And so why that's not interesting, I mean, there, there is a challenge, I guess, in, in covering these stories in ways that will interest the viewer. But I mean, I think right now, particularly where we are in a divided legislature with the Republicans in control in the House of Delegates, the, the Democrats controlling the Senate and a Republican governor. I mean, there are all kinds of issues where we have, you know, a very polarized situation. And, you know, I think our viewers and average people in the Commonwealth of Virginia are interested in these things. So I don't think it's hard to make it interesting, not hard to me, whether the average uh, viewer feels that way, whether uh, the young person who maybe doesn't get their news from TV these days, whether they feel that way or not, I don't know. I still think there's a lot of compelling content coming out of Richmond and that we ought to be covering, and it's important for us to be there. A lot of stuff you don't, you don't get unless you're there, you know? You might hear about some things a day later when they're in the newspaper, but um, if you really want to cover these issues well, you kind of need to be there and, and uh, be able to talk to people in the hallways and, and understand what's happening. Well, and two, Joe, I think about you in Richmond in 85, the issues you just mentioned weren't exactly issues you were covering then, but today they are hot button issues that need to be, uh, need to be a lead story possibly uh, at six o'clock. Yeah, well, it is funny. I mean, there there's some issues that are that have changed over time. There are a lot of other issues that are are very similar. We used to sit around the the um, the Capitol press room. There was an old filing cabinet mm. that had scripts from Channel Seven from you know ten twenty years earlier, <laughs> and we would we would dig into the files and pull out these stories that Ann Compton had written ten years earlier, and they were you know the exact same same thing we were covering at that moment. So. You know, obviously there are, you know, times change. I mean, we, we weren't talking about marijuana legalization in 1985. Obviously there are issues that change, but there are other things that, that, that don't change. And so, but, but again, I just, I believe that there are a lot of very important issues that affect people's lives uh, that we ought to be covering. Joe, you work with uh, Dr. Bob Denton, who I had on radio numerous times at WLNI, yes. uh, of course, that covering elections, politics, does his knowledge make it easier to cover for you? Oh, for sure. I first, you know, was aware of Bob Denton, Dr. Bob on when he was, uh, I guess, an analyst on a competing TV station. And over time, he came our way. And I've really been, uh, it's really been a pleasure 
to work with him. Um, I appreciate both his the depth of knowledge that he holds, also his sense of humor. And, you know, he's written like 40 books. <laughs> um, he, he, he's a real expert on you know, politics and, and Virginia politics, too. And uh, so I, I, he brings, um, I think, some good insights to what's happening. And he helps to explain it in a way that I think uh, our viewers can appreciate and understand. So he definitely makes it easier to cover something. Um, it gives me somebody to bounce off of mm-hmm. and to put a question that I'm you know, thinking is important and have him weigh in on it as well. It does help, I think, to illuminate some of these uh, issues that are coming before the General Assembly and some of the behind the scenes stuff, you know. So like, you know, how does uh, something play out politically? It's a real interesting time in the General Assembly with now in the wake of redistricting. Uh, we're going to have a, a real sea change in Richmond. We've already had, um, I think, close to 30 members of the General Assembly have already announced they're not coming back. There are a number who uh, members of the House of Delegates who've decided to run for vacancies in the state Senate. There are a number of members uh, who were placed into uh, districts uh, with other incumbents, and, and there's no easy way for them to find a new district. And so uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how the, the legislature changes here with a whole new group of people coming in. You mentioned redistricting. Right. I think that probably threw a major monkey wrench into the middle of the political arena, especially in Richmond. Well, it, it did, for sure. And, you know, it's been an interesting uh, debate over what approach the General Assembly should take with redistricting, which is, you know, of course, what happens every 10 years after the census. Mm. Uh, the the lines of the legislative districts are redrawn to uh, so that the population is evenly distributed between districts and, you know, we have the proper representation. In the past, it's been controlled by the parties. And so generally the party in power works the system to benefit the incumbents. What happened last time was the we had an independent, uh, we, the General Assembly approved an independent redistricting commission. They were unable to come up with a plan and it fell to the courts. And so the plan that resulted is interesting. I mean, it, you know, they tried to create districts that uh, had a community of interest, mm-hmm. you know, were, were less about incumbent preservation and more about, you know, which community should be paired together. And But as a result, a lot of incumbents uh, have been disadvantaged, perhaps. And so there are a lot of districts where there are two members in the same district. And so one of them, you know, either they're, you know, either one of them has to bow out or they're, uh, if they're both of the same party, they they'll, they might have a primary fight, or or in some cases we could have had um, you know Repu- a Republican like the Roanoke district, the Senate district. Uh, John Edwards and David Suterline, mm-hmm. uh, one a Democrat, one a Republican, were both in the same district. As it turns out, um, John Edwards decided to uh, retire. Uh, after a long and distinguished career, you know that would have been one where we would have had a Republican and a Democrat running against each other, both in the same district. So it, it is an, an interesting time, um, a lot going on that will you know bring a lot of new leadership into the General Assembly, and and how that will play out will be interesting to see. Some people talking about it's going to be good to have you know some fresh blood and some some new ideas. Uh, other people are concerned that the, the folks who are coming behind, those who are retiring and stepping aside, will be much more um, partisan and, and sort of stoke this the, the partisan polarizing divisions that we have today. So 
it's going to be a really interesting uh, situation to watch as we see who ends up in this the new General Assembly after the November elections. Joe DeShield, do you think uh, Governor Yunkin has a pretty good handle on Richmond right now? Um, politically, without, you know, passing judgment, I think he's, he's you know, in the election, both in the election and uh, so far in his administration, he has done a pretty good job of sort of riding a fine line, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in terms of getting elected. Uh, you know, he had to appeal to, um, you know, many of the people who supported Donald Trump, but he didn't want to alienate the people who might have been more in the middle. And so he he did a pretty good job of walking that line where he didn't alienate the, the you know, the, the strong conservative mm-hmm. folks, but but also managed to bring some of those independents into the conversation as well. I don't know if you caught his um, town hall forum uh, this week on CNN. You know, he he got a lot of criticism from Democrats for for his policies, as you know, a lot of his education policies have been very controversial. But I thought he did a good job of making a pitch that that could appeal to obviously strong conservative Republicans, but also some of those folks who are in the middle. So, you know, in in that respect, you know, I'd give him pretty good marks in terms of his, you know, how he has performed politically. There have been, you know, a number of of areas where Democrats would point out what they view as his failures. Sure. Um, and so, uh, it's certainly not, you know, there's no consensus around the fact that he has been a great governor or a, or a terrible governor. I think, you know, we're in a very polarized time, and I think the folks on the right think he's doing a great job, and the folks on the left uh, think otherwise. Um, and those swing voters in the middle, you know, the the most recent uh, public opinion polls suggest that, you know, his favorability ratings are above 50 percent. So some of those people in the middle are, you know, giving him fairly good marks. We were just talking about uh, Richmond and the governor. Let's yep. go to Washington. Okay. Is there a president you'd most like to have dinner with and why? Well, you know, there's certainly um, from the historical perspective, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, obviously, uh an Abraham Lincoln would be uh, someone who would be an amazing uh, opportunity to, to sit down with just because of the import of his presidency and uh, just what a fascinating person he was and how he pursued his presidency. I think it would be great to sit down with virtually any president. You know, uh, Barack Obama, uh, I think, would be, you know, a great opportunity to sit down with and, and have an interesting conversation. Uh, but there, there are many on both sides of the aisle who I think would be uh, fascinating people to talk with. As you say that, I think uh, a president, say his term in office, maybe 10, 15 years later, he might have done it differently 10 or 15 years right. later. No, no, no doubt about it. I, I bet they all have... Uh, <laughs> You know, would look back on their their time in office and and think, uh, you know, how they might have done things differently. I mean, you, obviously, Jimmy Carter has been in the um, the news of late uh, mm-hmm. because of his, um, you know, going into hospice and certainly sad news there. But uh, we've also heard so much about his post presidency and and what a an exemplary figure he was there and. Um, I imagine, you know, he probably has thoughts about his time in office uh, that he might have uh, done differently if uh, he had the opportunity. 
but you know he's a great example and and one who I would have liked to have um, sat down with you know when I might have had that opportunity. Um, I did cover him on a couple of occasions. I've covered and you know, I've I've actually have had the opportunity to cover presidents, though I've never had a a conversation, you know, a personal conversation or a, a private interview with any of them. But, I, you know, I did cover Ronald Reagan at the, the White House, um, folks like George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, Bill Clinton and others, um, and Jimmy Carter in the years after he left the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, I covered him up at VMI. So I have had the opportunity to cover presidents, though never actually uh, doing an interview. It is a fascinating subject. And you know, I've read, I've read books. Um, John Dickerson has a book, and and it's about the presidency. And fascinating uh, look at that, and just how it's really an impossible job, hard to get it right. How do you see TV news growing in the next five to ten years? And artificial intelligence? Do you think it's going to play a yeah. role in the news industry? How, how do we think uh, the news industry is going to grow? Well, I don't begin to know. Um, I think. I hope that news will continue to be relevant and people will understand the value of it. In terms of how it's delivered and how it's received, I can't begin to tell you. You know, I see us doing some things that I'm uh, excited about. We um, we have a series of podcasts mm-hmm. called Hometown Stories that Leanna Scacchetti and Ben Roquelme have been producing here at WDBJ, and we're, we're, we've been kind of ramping up on that front and and some of the work that they have done has been really really great won national awards in fact uh, edward r murrow awards for a, a couple of episodes um so i you know i see some digital initiatives like the podcasts as something promising that we're we're doing while we continue to try to you know do the more traditional uh forms uh but obviously social media um all of the different uh platforms that we all have to work on these days will move forward locally you know you see the decline of well not just locally but nationally we've seen the decline of newspapers and their difficulty with their business model Um, that's been disturbing because i think newspapers and strong media organizations are essential to a democracy and to see some of many of the the print uh, publications struggling has been hard but i also see these digital uh, a lot of the digital publications that have been coming up, including ones here in the Roanoke Valley with um, Cardinal News mm-hmm. and the Roanoke Rambler in particular, who are doing great work and whose um, you know, stories and, and whose coverage are helping to, to fill a gap that has grown as, as newspapers have uh, struggled to, to preserve their business model. So, you know, there's definitely some downside in, in the, the media landscape, but I also see some reasons for optimism. Now, looking at AI, I, I think we have barely scratched the surface of how AI is going to affect our lives. And I feel sure that it's going to, you know, that all aspects of our lives will probably be um, affected by AI uh, and certainly the news industry as well. How that will play out, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see just the difficulty of um, evaluating information, you know, moving forward. Because whether you're talking about copy, you know, articles that are written by artificial intelligence or deep fakes, you know, videos that are 
uh, created through the use of artificial intelligence. You know, it's going to be hard to, I think, to judge the value of information moving forward. And maybe that will help news organizations in a sense kind of re- regain a, a place in the world where the information they're producing is valued by the public in, in, in a way that perhaps is stronger than it is today. I do appreciate you being on the podcast and thank you so much for all the stories that you've covered since 1980. Uh, you have been a part of so many families watching WDBJ7 as viewers uh, put their trust in your coverage. So uh, thank you for sharing your talents with us. Well, thank you, Larry. I've enjoyed it. It's been a great career and I've enjoyed spending it uh, working for the viewers in Western Virginia. So it's been a pleasure. It's been great talking with you today. Thanks for listening to episode 69 of Larry Dowdy Mike Side with WDBJ7 senior reporter Joe DeShiel. You can find Larry Dowdy Mike Side wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to share this podcast with someone by clicking on the share button. Join me next time for Larry Dowdy Mike Side. See you then. <laughs>